From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting the show talking about something that has been getting a lot of attention in the city of Richmond and city council there will be meeting later today discussing the merits of establishing a safe or supervised consumption site at the hospital in Richmond. If created, this would be a place to provide people with a place who people who use substances and offering them connections as well to treatment or counseling services. This is a proposal though that has been met with push back. You've been hearing about a petition that is growing in size with concerns over public safety issues. Well, Councillor Cash Heed is the councillor who brought the proposal forward. He said this earlier today. The problem is there's such a misunderstanding of what we're trying to do here. We're actually putting together a supervisor asking Coastal Health Authority to put together a supervised consumption site wherein it has an exemption under Health Canada Section 56 under the Control of Drugs and Substances Act. We're not looking for what the misinformation is out there right now, a harm reduction site at this particular time. We need an intake for a lot of our people that are suffering from acute drug addiction and dying from the use of the tainted supply, mainly related to fentanyl right now. Well, joining me now is Chuck Au, a Richmond City Councillor. Thank you so much, Councillor, for taking some time today. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. What is your response, your thought about this proposal, what Councillor Heed just said and with what he has brought forward? Well, first of all, I would like to react uh, in saying that um, it's not uh, the Vancouver Coastal Health Initiative. Actually, if this motion is passed, City Council is asking Vancouver Coastal Health to look into that. So the initiative is taken by Council. So I think I think I don't think we can blame it on the uh, Vancouver Coastal Health or you know saying that we are only passive. Actually, uh, the motion itself uh, asks for actions uh, with Vancouver Coastal Health as well. There is the petition, as I mentioned. Uh, I think it's it's getting close to around twenty thousand people having signed that petition against the site being created. What are the concerns about having a supervised consumption site at the Richmond Hospital? Well, I think it's unfair to say that uh, people are being uh, misinformed. Uh, but I think the number itself uh, shows that people are very concerned. Uh, there are all kinds of concern uh, re- regarding uh, what is being proposed. Now, the proposal itself was very complex and it's uh, very complicated in a sense. And that's why it creates worries uh, in the people. And I've never seen such a large scale of a response uh, in public uh, opinion, uh, within a week, you know, uh, as many as uh, 20,000 people have signed a petition. I've never seen that before. So it tells you that uh, we have to be very cautious in moving forward. I think we have to listen to uh, opinions from all sides. And when people have such a grave concern about what is being proposed, I think we have to take note of that. Absolutely. And, and again, that number, around 20,000 people having signed the petition. But what are some of the, the specific concerns that people have, why people are opposed to having this site, to potentially having this site set up at the hospital? Now, I can, cannot speak for the people. And I think uh, people are opposing to it for different reasons. And the concerns they have may vary uh, 
uh, a whole lot. But I think in general, people are concerned about the effectiveness of the uh, proposed injection site. Uh, because, you know, we have seen that uh, since these injection sites are being implemented uh, in Vancouver uh, from 2003 onwards, what we've seen is the increased number of deaths uh, in the province, both in absolute numbers and per capita number. So I think people are questioning whether or not this kind of approach is effective in addressing the uh, drug issues that we have in the province. And secondly, I think people are also concerned about uh, whether or not the injection site could really help people in getting rid of the risky behavior. Um, because it's likely to be a maintenance, maintenance program. So it's like people who are falling into water, you give them a life jacket to give them a flow. You are not really pulling them out of the water or preventing people from falling into it. So I think people are concerned whether or not this is only a program that maintains uh, certain risky behavior. And right. I think finally, you know, as I see, as I, I see it, um, when Vancouver Coastal Health has expressed repeatedly that injection site is not a priority in Richmond. Um, actually, Dr. Dawo, uh, the medical officer in Richmond, has said that Richmond did not have this density of people using drugs to justify it. So I think for all these reasons, people are expressing the concern from um, personal safety to the effectiveness of this program and the use of uh, uh, public money uh, in terms of prioritization. Right. And just to go back to something you said about the number of deaths, and you're absolutely right. We have seen uh, the number of people dying of overdoses in B.C. Uh, since it was declared a public health emergency. That number uh, has grown, and we get those numbers from the coroner. But there haven't been fatals, uh, fatalities at the consumption sites, which I think is, is part of the argument as as to to saving people in that sense. But but if I'm hearing you correctly, your concern is that, that maybe we should be focusing, and I think the people who have signed the petition, maybe we should be focusing more on treatment rather than a consumption site? Yes, I think we should uh, take a more comprehensive look at the whole issue. Um, now, if you say that uh, consum I mean, consumption sites are saving lives, uh, we have to we should be seeing a decline of the number of deaths over the years. It's been 20 years in experiment, but what we are seeing is not the case. And again, as policymakers, we have to, we have to take a more comprehensive approach to address the drug issues. Now, we've been talking about the four pillars approach, which I think a perfect uh, model, but what we have been seeing in the last 20 years is and uh, unproportional uh, emphasis on harm reduction. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have largely ignored uh, prevention, uh, treatment, and enforcement. So right now, even if somebody wants to uh, receive treatment, they have to wait for eight weeks at least to be assessed. So how, how, how can we say that we are really helping uh, people? Well, I know it is a good question, and I know uh, there is going to be a lot of attention paid to when this comes to council, when council uh, debates it uh, again uh, later on today. Uh, we will leave it there, but Councillor Chak Ao, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time today. 
Yeah, once again, thank you for having me. Thanks for being with us. Well, they can be described as shocking, although I guess we shouldn't be shocked at this point. Talking about the findings of the Federal Auditor General, finding that the government agencies behind the ArriveCan app repeatedly failed to follow best practices in the development of the now controversial app. And Auditor General Karen Hogan also, in that long-awaited report that was released earlier today, blasted the Canada Board Border Services Agency, CBSA, the Public Health Agency of Canada, and the Public Services and Procurement Canada, all of those departments responsible for the ArriveCan. Here is a direct quote from the Auditor General. Overall, the Canada Border Services Agency, the Public Health Agency of Canada, and Public Services and Procurement repeatedly failed to follow good management practices in the contracting, development, and implementation of ArriveCan. It goes on to say, as a result of the many gaps and weaknesses we found in the project's design, oversight, and accountability, it did not deliver the best value for taxpayer dollars spent. Joining me now to talk a little bit more about this is Duff Conacher, the co-founder of Democracy Watch. Duff, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. What are your thoughts uh, now that we've got to this report? I think scathing is a word that can be used to describe it, uh, but to what the Auditor General is now saying about the millions of dollars spent and how they were spent on ArriveCan. Well, um, there are lack of rules in some areas, and the rules that are there sounds like uh, many of them were broken from what the Auditor General found. And so uh, hopefully... Um, some people will be found accountable, which often, unfortunately, does not happen in these situations. People are let off and continue in their jobs. Um, and also, hopefully, we'll have some changes come in that will uh, require government employees to document all their decisions and actions, because the Auditor General couldn't find documents in a lot of cases, uh, and have high penalties for that, and also close the loopholes that allowed for secret lobbying by the uh, subcontracting companies like GC Strategies. GC Strategies certainly is one that's been uh, talked about. uh, And uh, Bill Curry, who is the Deputy Ottawa Bureau Chief, who spoke to us about this uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I just want to play again a little bit from his conversation, because even before the release of this report earlier today, he mentioned the $25 million contract to uh, GC Strategies. We also reported about some of the ways that uh, the government hired contractors to do this work that raised some questions, particularly that this one company that at the time didn't have a whole lot of profile, GC Strategies, got the most outsourcing work to help build the and maintain the app. And it turns out that they're just two people, two people based uh, just outside of Ottawa that work from their home. And they don't actually do any IT work themselves. They, they land, they win contracts, and then they find other people, subcontractors, to actually do the work. And Duff, you mentioned or you talked about that company as well. $25 million seems like a lot of money to be going to two people working out and and who aren't actually even doing the work. Yeah, and it raises a lot of questions um, that the RCMP is now investigating as well, especially given that uh, they were essentially whining and dining officials at the Canada Border Services Agency, uh, and those officials were not informing 
their superiors of uh, these gifts and favors from GC Strategies and other subcontractors. And so it just raises a lot of questions about where the money might have ended up, and that needs to be investigated. But also a, a systemic solution, which the Auditor General talked about today in her testimony, is that, and, and if you look at any government, any big business that's bought tech over the last uh, 20, 25 years, you'll find the same thing. You have managers who don't understand the tech trying to purchase it, and they get duped by consultants. And there's all sorts of people in the middle who make lots of money. As you know, the old word, uh, breaking down the word consultant is to con someone and insult them. And that's what has happened across the country and across the world because you had executives who weren't techies and didn't know what they were buying and so had to hire people to tell them what to buy and they often got ripped off. Um, This is what's happened, I think, in this situation. And the federal government long ago should have hired people who know what they're doing, paid them, and they would have saved tens of millions of dollars instead of subcontracting to these people. Uh, they could have just paid them a regular salary and, and had them inside government, that, and they would be the ones that would hand out these contracts because they would actually know what they were doing. And when you talk about the money as well and the ballooning cost of this, and even the Auditor General said earlier today, uh, saying, and, and the, this was a quote in the report, saying uh, the CBSA's documentation, financial records, and controls were so poor that we were unable to determine the precise cost of the Arrive Can app. Uh, using information that was available, we estimated that the cost is approximately $59.5 million. So isn't that... A a bit alarming as well that th- this was done so poorly that we don't even know how many taxpayer dollars went into this. Yes, and that's why, as I mentioned, we need a rule um, in law that says the government employees have to create records of all their actions and decisions and keep good records to standards that would be set out in the law, and the penalty should be very high for not doing that. Because part of the RCMP's challenge right now is to figure out who actually approved these decisions. And the Auditor General and the procurement ombudsman, who also looked into the situation, said, we can't even tell who approved these contracts. Well, it's pretty hard to find someone guilty of taking a bribe or violating the financial administration law or breach, uh, breach of trust under the criminal code if you can't determine who actually did the action that uh, violated all the rules. So um, it has to be put in place. And if you don't keep those uh, records, you should be fired because you're clearly trying to cover up something uh, that is wrongdoing. And unfortunately, there is no rule right now in terms of the standards that have to be met and no penalties for violating those standards in terms of keeping records of decisions and actions. My guest is Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch. We're talking again about the Auditor General's report looking at the Arrive Can app and some glaring, uh, glaring omissions when it comes to proper policy. Uh, Duff, I'm con- uh, con- wondering what you're thinking of this as well, because what I found, uh, well, so many parts of this interesting, but the Auditor General in this case was actually going to be wrapping things up. The report was going to be done late last year. That changed when the Globe and Mail published new information and revealed more about some of the companies, the subcontractors. Uh, is that concerning in that had that not happened, uh, we might not have even had this information. 
Yes, it's another part of the problem with the federal government system, and these problems exist in every government across the country. The whistleblower protection system is not strong enough to really protect whistleblowers, and so people don't stick their necks out and report wrongdoing. Luckily, they did in this case. The two sub-subcontractors who who were not only uh, blew the whistle, but also were recording conversations when they thought something was smelly and 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 also gathered a, a lot of um, very compelling evidence about the wrongdoing uh, that was going on as uh, uh, that they were dealing with as a sub-subcontractor. But um, the whistleblower protection system doesn't even cover contractors with the federal government currently. There's a bill going through that would change that in some ways, but still not make the system strong enough. And whistleblowers need to be protected. They're on the front lines witnessing wrongdoing, and they need to not only be protected fully, but also rewarded if they are reporting wrongdoing that will save the public money. They do that in the U.S., and they did it decades ago in the U.S., and we still haven't done it here in Canada, and it's just negligence by every federal political party to not have strengthened this law long ago. Uh, there certainly has been a wide range of response to this. Uh, I, I know, and this also quoted in the, the Globe and Mail, uh, at least one lawyer representing some of those that's contractors saying that these are a lot of baseless accusations. But we've also heard from Canada Border Services saying it accepts the recommendations and uh, it is going to be launching a new contract review board uh, to look at specific contracts. Uh, the Public Health Agency of Canada says it's it's going to be up updating its guidance uh, with respect to files and documentation. Do you think that this will lead to any actual change? Are you confident of that? No, the laws need to change. Internal investigations, internal changes, um, the CBSA should not be trusted to, to do it. We need all of the laws strengthened. We need penalties put in place, strengthening of whistleblower protection, uh, and um, auditing of of uh, gifts and other activities that that um, and all the secret lobbying loopholes closed and so um, unless those changes are done expect to see it again this is the problem with auditor general reports the auditor general finds wrongdoing has no power to penalize anyone and then five years later finds the same wrongdoing again why because no one was penalized so they knew hey i get to keep my job yeah, there were headlines for a few days, a bit of heat. We promised to change things, and then they don't change things. So the Auditor General needs to be given powers, and all the watchdogs do, to penalize people who break the rules. Otherwise, people aren't going to change unless they know there's a penalty. That's the way humans work, unfortunately. As my dad always used to say, people do what you inspect and penalize, not what you expect. <laughs> Well, uh, certainly a lot of questions remain about this. Duff Conacher, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you. I'll keep you updated as hopefully we win these changes. We are lightening things up a little bit, and my guess is there are some people out there planning to do something a little special on February 14th, but some new research also shows that the number of Canadians who would happily call off a relationship for what some might think is a small deal, not a huge deal, well, that number perhaps is getting bigger. Joining me to explain is Mario Canseco, the president of Research Co. Mario, thank you so much for being with us. 
It's great to be here, Jill. Uh, you were asking people about what it would take for them to break up with somebody, or I suppose that, that it wouldn't take that much in many cases. Uh, do you do this every year uh, in light of or looking forward to Valentine's Day? We've done it a couple of times. Uh, we thought it best to do it this year, close to Valentine's Day. And the numbers are quite striking. You know, a couple of years ago, what we found was people maybe coming out of the pandemic, not really that picky when it came to who they were dating. And now, two years later, the numbers are just off the charts. You know, you have a third of Canadians who say, I would stop dating or going out with a person because of how they eat. So you're thinking about manners. You're thinking about the type of... Uh, things that you want to see when you're sharing the dinner table with somebody. And it's up six points from when we asked back in January 2022. Uh, significantly higher also in British Columbia and in Alberta. So, hmm. you know, we, we do tend to be more picky when it comes to whether we're going to share our lives with somebody who doesn't uh, actually perform well at the dinner table. So more than a third of women, 35%, saying they would call off a relationship with somebody who displayed bad manners at the dinner table. Did it go into any greater detail or is that kind of general terms bad manners? Well, we also saw 7% who told us, uh, yes, as a woman, I've broken up with somebody because of this. You know, if you're not going to change your ways and, and do this differently, uh, this isn't what I'm interested in. It's, a, it's significantly higher with women than with men. With men, we have it at 31%. Um, it's an important distinction because uh, one thing that we're seeing here is also a lot of changes, particularly when it comes to our own ethnicity. Uh, um, uh, Canadians of indigenous descent, more likely to say, I would break up with somebody who is behaving this way at the dinner table at 36%, the lowest with East Asian respondents at 29%. It's still high. You know, it's still more than one out of four people who say, if I go on a date and somebody's doing stuff that I'm not happy with, uh, there's not going to be a second date. Uh, that's an interesting breakdown as well, looking at uh, at uh, the, the different groups, like you said, of indigenous descent, European descent, Asian descent, and, and that the numbers are, are not hugely different, but there's a significant gaps there or, or, or all kind of within 5%, but still not, not the same. No, it's an important thing to look into because uh, one thing that we also were curious about, aside from uh, the situation related to manners at the table, is... What happens when you're dating somebody who has a different diet than yours? And uh, the numbers are really off the charts, particularly with South Asian respondents. 18% of them telling us, I broke up with somebody because we had a different diet. And 19% who said, I would break up with somebody if we went into a restaurant and they were eating something different than from, from what I am eating. Really? So something hmm. that is also particularly important for younger Canadians. Over the past five or six years, we've seen uh, the numbers rise a little bit in Canada when it comes to people becoming vegetarian or vegan. With the 18 to 34 crowd, it's significantly high. So we have 18% of those aged 18 to 34 who say they would break up for, with someone because they had a different diet than they have. And 9% who said, guess what? I've already did this. Uh, I'm not going to share the table with somebody who's eating stuff that I won't eat. Interesting. So is it, do you think, and, and I know this is probably a, a level of detail more, but if somebody was vegetarian or vegan and they, they were out with somebody and say they ordered the steak, that would be the deal breaker? <laughs> that has been the deal breaker. You know, it's a, it really reminds me of that scene in, a, in a, the movie Pulp Fiction. Uh, where the character from Samuel L. Jackson says, I'm, I'm dating a vegetarian, which means I'm a vegetarian too right now. 
<laughs> Interesting. See, I've always thought of it the other way, and that so I, I'm I'm I guess a pescatarian. I don't eat meat. I don't eat meat or birds or land animals, but I do eat seafood. But I always thought of it as a plus side. If the person you're out with orders something different, because you never have to share your food. There's no expectation. <laughs> hey, that would be great. You know, now now that you put it that way. I think that makes perfect sense. You know, there's no more forks in your in your plate because somebody wants to try it. Exactly. I'm yeah. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of that. <laughs> I think I may have skewed the numbers uh, if I was taking this survey uh, as well. Uh, so so interesting. There dietary uh, habits and people wanting those to be aligned. Uh, this is one that I, I'm not shocked by this one, but going on that along that line of bad manners at the table. But you also ask people about uh, hygiene issues and say if somebody has bad breath. This is crucial. Uh, we have 33% of Canadians who say I would break up with somebody who had bad breath. 11% who say I've already broken up with somebody who has bad breath. Uh, significantly higher in Ontario at 37%. It's higher than BC, higher than Alberta. It's practically two out of five uh, in, in, of residents of Ontario who are telling us that they would break up with somebody so, you know, we, we've seen a lot of ads uh, for gaming coming out of Ontario, particularly during the Super Bowl. Maybe more ads for gum or toothpaste uh, <laughs> would, would certainly help. Wow. Hmm. I, I, I'm curious about that one, too. Is, if it, is, is this a chronic issue with people? Is it just, uh, yeah, you just need to, to brush more? Uh, there seem like this one, to me, is raising a lot of questions. Well, and one, one thing that was quite interesting to me looking into this, we never have conservative and NDP voters agreeing with each other. We found the cause. It's bad breath. Ah. 37% for NDP voters, 36% for conservatives. So at least something is uniting these two polar opposites in the federal <laughs> political landscape. Uh, who would have thought that was the common ground? <laughs> Interesting. Um, any other findings in this or numbers in this? Like you said, you've done it a couple of times. Anything else that sticks out for you? You know, the one thing that is really interesting is just how much this has changed over time. You know, when we did it the first time in 2022, we thought, okay, it's not going to go higher than this. You know, people aren't going to get pickier necessarily. And the reality is, especially when you look at the younger demographic, this is the demographic that is finding their ideal soulmate in a way. Uh, they are more likely to say, yeah, I'm not going to be spending time with somebody who I don't respect as far as the dinner table is concerned or somebody who is eating different stuff than what I'm eating. Uh, you look at the over 55 demographic and it's like, it's fine. We've, we've, we've grown up together. I've learned to deal with bad breath or with a situation where they're not eating properly at the dinner table. Uh, but the younger generation is getting significantly pickier. You know, you look at the findings compared to 2022. The changes with the 18 to 34 uh, cohort are significantly larger than what we see for older adults. You mentioned the pandemic as well. Do you think that's had an impact on it in that maybe people let things go more or people were so starved for attention after uh, when, when things were shut down for a while and uh, there were people in bubbles and you weren't supposed to be hanging out in groups? Did that change, do you think? And now that things are back, people are, are pickier now or, or going back to, hey, I don't have to put up with stuff that I don't want to. <laughs> I think it's a combination of both. I think there's certainly that human element of saying, uh, you know, we've been too close to a situation that was very sad for everybody. Uh, if I'm going to be spending time with somebody, I want to be with somebody who is going to 
essentially do what I like and, and, and share everything that we're going to be here for. And I think that is part of the pickiness that we're seeing, particularly from the younger demographic. You know, I, 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 if I'm going to go out, if I'm going to spend time with someone, if I'm going to consider entering a relationship with somebody, there are certain things that have to be met. You know, it's no longer about how much money you have or certain ideas that you have about the plans for the future. Uh, if I don't like how you're reading, I don't care about your bank account. <laughs> I would think that I, I know you mentioned uh, voting, uh, how people vote and, and the common ground found there. But I would imagine age also comes into play as well in that not not for everybody, but I think the older people get the less that you're willing to put up with. That is definitely part of this. And, and you know, there's a sense here also, I think we see it a lot from the 55 and over crowd, you know, you've been together with somebody for such a long time. It's tough for you to imagine that you're going to be with somebody different. Uh, the 35 to 54 numbers are interesting because you are, we are more likely to be like the younger adults and, and, and try to figure out if this is something that we want to be a part of or not. Uh, but it's the 18 to 34 year olds that are changing things drastically, not only because of the way they are eating, but also because of the things that, I, that they want to eat. Interesting findings. Mario, we'll leave it there for today. But as always, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure, Jill. Anytime. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.